Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, now that I've told you I'm going to teach on the book of Acts, turn to the book of Luke. <laughs> the 24th chapter of the book of Luke. Luke, uh, a physician, wrote the gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. So part of what is in the first of the book of Acts actually fits into the end of the book of Luke. And what's at the end of the book of Luke actually kind of overlaps. It's like uh, those pages in books where you lay a map over on top of it. So we'll begin with the end of the book of Luke, the very last chapter, beginning with verse 50. And he, that is Jesus, of course, he led them out as far as to Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Now, you can tell Luke thought that was the last thing he was going to write. He's finished. Amen. But then you see, now turn to the book of Acts. And you can see that he subsequently has further thoughts on it. The former treatise, what is that? The book of Luke. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, just as we just read, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days. Now just pause right there a moment. Do you see that 40 days should actually be before what we just read at the end of the book of Luke? He just skipped over that 40 days at Luke. And I, I think that's understandable Imagine that you witness the ascension. You witness the sky part and the Son of God rise to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You might be in a rush to get to that when you're writing. Yeah, and there was some other stuff, but let me tell you about the ascension. But now he's going back and dealing with that period of time after his passion, meaning what the, the torture and the crucifixion and the resurrection. So now he's saying after that, there's a 40-day span in there. Verse 3, to whom also Jesus showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Please underline, things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now think back. Think back. What is he referencing? He's referencing John Baptist's 
prophecy that Messiah would come and baptize them with the Holy Ghost. I indeed baptize you with water, but he that cometh after me, whose shoe latchet I'm not worthy to unloose, he will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. As a Pentecostal, it just tickles me pink that the first person to preach the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a Baptist. John the Baptist. For John, John the Baptist, truly baptized you with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, now we're at the end of the book of Luke. Do you see it? And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And they returned unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Now put your hands on your Bible and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and mercy usward. Lord, I praise you and I thank you for this precious church, for the leadership of this church and for what ministry you have given them Sunday upon Sunday. And Lord, I pray that you will bless and prosper the church and use them mightily. In these Wednesdays, O Lord, we humbly beseech you, send the Holy Spirit upon us. Come, Holy Spirit. Illumine our hearts. Quicken our spirits. Give us ready minds and receptive to the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine the world in which this scenario happens. To us, this is, to us, this is huge. To us, it's everything. The, the, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the, the 40 days of time with the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It's, it's everything. It's why we're here. It's why there are Christian churches scattered all over the world. It's why there are so many in the United States. It's, it's, it's huge to us. But you have to understand this happened in a tiny little closet of a hugely complicated world. The, Rome didn't tremble at the crucifixion of Jesus. It was nothing. He was just another Jew hung on another cross beside another road. His resurrection caused confusion and turmoil and everything in Jerusalem. But Caesar didn't say to himself, wow, this is the beginning of the Christian church. Jesus was just raised from the dead. It, it, it was a, a 
small thing in a small corner of a hugely complicated world. So think about the people that are experiencing this. Who, who are these people? This, the, the worldwide, international, global church of God is 120 Jews. It's, that's every, everybody. Now there were perhaps people in the villages that had been touched by his miracles. There were secret believers. But the, the key deal in, of the church in this time is 120 Jews in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, an important town, but it's, it's not Rome. It's not Alexandria. It's not Antioch. It's, it, it's, it's a distant capital of a country that the, that the Jews call Israel and the Romans call Judea. So who are these people? They are mostly laboring class. They are not wealthy. They are not powerful. They are not politicians. They're not soldiers. They're not great thinkers. The core of the leadership are ex-fishermen, professional fishermen. Worked hard. These are not rabbis. These are not philosophers. These are not writers. They turn out to be writers. John writes, Peter writes, Luke writes. But they have no history in that. These are a professional fisherman. Do you understand what that means? Those are hardworking people. And, and, not, and Simon Peter, frankly, he's not a particularly clever chap. And, and, and none of these guys are. They, they're just working class, largely working class chaps. Now, what are they feeling? What's happening to them? I wonder if we can identify with these things at all. First of all, they lived in a world of huge international political power that they could not understand, could not change, and yet had tremendous influence and power over their lives. They lived in an international world order that was entirely corrupt. A global government, a one world government. I just want you to hear what I'm saying to you. I hear American Christians say all the time, they're terrified about the world order. They, they can't, what if there's a one world government, all this? We were born under a corrupt world order and a one world dictatorship. The church began in that atmosphere. These are tiny little people in an out-of-the-way city that are experiencing something that is mind-blowing to them and nobody else cares about. Caesar, Caesar owns the world. The seat, the, the seat of power of a, a Hegemony that stretches the entire Mediterranean basin from Syria to, to what we now call England, to Germany, to, to North Africa. It's, it's a massive, basically world empire ruled by one man. His word is absolute law. Oh, there's a Senate in Rome, but it's, imagine living in a world where the Senate is completely useless. And where there, where there are huge 
political forces, geopolitical and military forces that own the world. And you're a professional fisherman who's just seen the Son of God rise to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Can you feel the, feel the conflict? I'm in something that is huge, dominant, powerful, beyond me. Beyond my capacity to understand it. I, I'm a professional fisherman from Galilee and I'm hanging out in Jerusalem because my leader has just been crucified by this one world power that's in Rome. All of that is there. A world of constant war. The Roman Empire kept its empire in place by war. Punitive wars. Some little tribe in Gaul or or Great Britain or uh, Asia Minor decides they want to rebel and break off from the Roman legions, go and, and obliterate them. Horrible, punitive wars. Constant. The world is at war. So they're in a huge geopolitical and military world that is massive and beyond their capacity to understand. They don't understand the political machinations that are going on in Rome. They, they, they can't even deal with that. And, and they have no ability to impact it or change it. That's on one side. On the other side, they are all Jews who are living in a Jewish country, in the capital of a Jewish country, and their leader who has been officially crucified by Rome, yes, officially crucified by Rome, but remember, their own official religious leadership pushed that crucifixion. Remember, Pilate didn't want to do it. Pilate was squeamish over the whole thing. Pilate's wife was very squeamish. She said, I've had a dream, and it has messed with my mind, and do not do this. Pilate... Pilate called Jesus in to interview him. And he said, look, what's up with this? What's going on here? These people say you're a king. Are you a king? Jesus said, yes, I'm a king. But I'm not a king like Caesar. Caesar's a king. He wants to be king. Let him be king. I'm a king, but I'm not a king like Caesar. If I was a king like Caesar, if Caesar was captured, what would he do? His legions would come. They would fight. They'd put up... Uh, they'd attack Jer Jerusalem. They would attack and try to set me free. I'm a king. Nobody's coming. I don't have any armies. I'm not, I'm not a king like Caesar, but am I a king? I'm a king. What do you? <laughs> Pilate goes out to the crowd and says, let's don't do this. Something's wrong here. <laughs> they scream, crucify him, crucify him. He goes back in and he says to Jesus, look, don't you understand? I have the power to crucify you. It's one of the only moments that Jesus speaks for himself. He says, you have no power over me. You have no power over me. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. And Pilate goes out and says, this is a mistake. I'm telling you. So it's not really Rome is not threatened by Jesus. Rome is not aware of Jesus. Pilate isn't even aware of Jesus until they show up with him. So not only are they 
dominated by, controlled, living in the atmosphere of this crazy geopolitical world of Rome, they are also living in, dominated by a corrupt religious leadership. It's not, not Judaism. That you hear all this horrible anti-Semitic talk that the Jews killed Jesus. The Jews did not kill Jesus. Political power and religious power killed Jesus. There is no nastiness like the nastiness of politics, and there is no nastiness of politics like the politics of religion. And those two forces, the political leadership of religion combined with the political leadership of geopolitics, that's what killed Jesus. And his followers are fully aware of that. They're they're in the city. Look, it hasn't even been... It hasn't even been two months since Jesus was arrested and tortured and crucified. It hasn't even been two months. And they're still in Jerusalem where he was arrested and tortured and crucified. For all they know, the temple police are going to break in right now. The Roman cops are going to break in. So they're living in this terrible tension. listen, Listen to old Dr. Mark for a minute. There may come some moment where huge and distant geopolitical forces and powers that seem to be in control seem to dominate your life and the airways and make decisions that impact you deeply and you may feel less and little and abandoned. Remember this. Caesar is not in control of any of this. This is all God's plan. This is all God's plan. This this is the wonder of of God using leaders that don't even know they're being used. And, And it came to pass that Caesar Augustus determined that there should be a census and that everyone should return to the town of their family heritage and be taxed. And so Joseph, a man in Nazareth, realizing that he is of the household of David, must return to Bethlehem and takes with him his betrothed, who is great with child, so that the baby that is conceived miraculously by the Holy Ghost in Nazareth cannot be born in Nazareth because that's not what the prophet said. He has to be born in Bethlehem. But how do we get that baby from Nazareth to Bethlehem? And God says, I know. Caesar Augustus. I think that's my man. Do you see what I'm trying to say to you here? This is we, we can get the image of ourselves as being ground to powder under the boot heel of Caesar, of being out of control of huge religious forces that seem to have lost everything the church or religion ought to be about. But the bottom line is, God was never out of control. Look, when, when Jesus was crucified, that wasn't... That wasn't a surprise to God. God didn't say, oh, man, whoa. I wasn't thinking they'd kill him. Now what? I know the resurrection. 
The resurrection was always the plan. You can't have a resurrection without a death. You can't have a death unless somebody kills somebody. So the whole thing, the whole thing is playing out in the, in the predetermined will and power of God. We know that because he spoke it through his prophets. Why would he speak all this through prophets hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened? Why would he do that? Because he wants us to know, I didn't just think this up this morning. I'm in control of this. Now that, that's hugely encouraging to us. That God is in control. We are not living as, as bugs under the chariot wheels of Caesar. So that's the first part. The second part is this. If you're in that situation, let's put ourselves in the mind of those people. They've, what have they seen? They've seen Jesus crucified, dead, buried. They, he died three days dead. Let me just say this to you, not trying to be offensive. Three days dead body in the heat of the Middle East. That's a very serious issue. Remember on the fourth day, Lazarus was raised on the fourth day. And Jesus said, roll away the stone. I love the prissy language of the King James Bible. Remember, Martha says, oh, Lord, don't do that. By now he stinketh. <laughs> so I mean, they, they've seen this. And they have seen him alive now for 40 days. Again, can we project ourselves Back into that. Can we begin to think of that? Don't read it like a Bible story. Think back. His nail scars, remember, his scars are visible. Can, can, do you understand what I'm saying? Can you imagine sitting at breakfast with the resurrected son of God? Don't you know there were moments when they just... Okay, Jesus saying, want some scrambled eggs? Oh, if I could just touch, you know? It was huge. This was mind-blowing. He's not only raised from the dead. Remember, he has already ascended to heaven and poured his sacrifice out. He said to Mary, hinder me not. I've not yet gone to the Father. So he has descended into the dead, raised from the dead, gone up to the Father, come back, walked through the wall, reassembled his physical body, and now he's sitting with him and talking with him for a month and ten days. I bet there were things he said they couldn't even understand what he was talking about. They hadn't understood anything the previous three years. So... Finally, Jesus says something that resonates. Finally, he says something, and they think, whoa. He says, not many days from now, you shall receive power. Not many days. And they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to are you going to set up a throne in Jerusalem and rule the Gentile nations with a rod of iron? They're in on the ground floor of the greatest IPO in history. 
There's going to be, Jesus gets the big chair, right? And nobody's arguing about that. Jesus gets the big chair, but there'll be little chairs. In fact, Judas Iscariot's hanged himself. This is better. There only has to be 11. Don't divide it up 12 ways. They're already thinking. One says, I want to rule Egypt. Another one says, I want Italy. Rome's going to suffer. <laughs> Is this the moment, Lord, when you restore the Davidic dynasty, sit on your throne in Jerusalem? And we, we know this is what they were thinking because of the mother of James and John came to Jesus and said, when you sit down in the big chair, well, I know you get the big chair, Lord, but could my sons sit on either side of you? And the other disciples were furious. Why? Because her theology of power and glory was so mixed up? No, because she beat them to the punch. <laughs> so he says, not many days from now, something wonderful is going to happen. And they said, Lord, this is great. What we don't know much of anything, why wouldn't Luke record what Jesus taught in those 40 days? You just want to say, look, man, we'd like to have that. You didn't take any notes, nothing. It only tells us one thing. For 40 days, he taught them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So for 40 days, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Here they are stranded between the kings of religion and the king at Rome. And Jesus is suddenly talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Not many days from now, it's going to come. And they said, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, no. No. He says, no. No. He said, you, you can't understand anything I'm saying to you. He said, you, you're thinking about a kingdom. This is the conversation I had with Pilate just a few weeks ago. No, you don't get a kingdom. That's Caesar has a kingdom. You don't get a kingdom. You get a kingdom, <laughs> but not a kingdom. And they said, Lord, we, we thought we were going to get power. Oh, you shall receive power. He said, we will. He said, yes, but you're not going to have any power. <laughs> you want power. You're not going to have any power, but you shall receive power. This, this is huge. This is not a small thing. When we get this confused, the church always goes wonky. Whenever we think it's going to be our kingdom and it's going to be power and glory it's the opposite of everything we say in the Lord's Prayer. Thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, and thine is the glory. Whenever we start to take it on ourselves, we're going to build a kingdom, cause a kingdom, make a kingdom, and we're going to have power every time. Now listen to me on this. If we're not careful always with our rhetoric on this, we wind up unleashing third-class sociopaths who do terrible things in the name of Jesus. Somebody 
Somebody is not careful about their language about power and kingdom and glory and the opposition to spiritual forces and darkness and Caesar and somebody grabs an automatic weapon and shoots an abortion doctor in the name of Jesus. Because we weren't careful about what we said about kingdom and power and glory. There's no, there's no Christian mujahideen. We don't have that job description. There's no Christian jihad. I always say you can tell the nature of any religion by what its founder came carrying. Moses came carrying the law. Muhammad came carrying a sword. Jesus came carrying a cross. We, we, don't, we don't get to carry a sword. They said, Lord, we want a sword. Remember the night that Jesus was arrested? Do you remember Peter? who had slept through the prayer meeting, I'm just saying. <laughs> Peter wakes up, the cops are putting the cuffs on Jesus, and Peter draws his sword and whacks off one of the cops' ears. And Jesus says, Oy. Peter said, sword, you said get a sword. I heard you. Jesus says, sword, not sword. <laughs> And the only recreative, regenerative miracle in the entire New Testament. I'm not saying it's the only one Jesus worked. It's the only one that anybody recorded. Jesus touched that cop and grew his ear back. Wouldn't it be a sad, pathetic, horrible tragedy if 2,000 years later, Jesus still has to go around behind the Christian church healing the people that we whack in his name? We don't get to whack anybody. <laughs> Lord, we, we're tired of being stomped on. We're tired of being whacked. We want to whack somebody. Jesus said, you don't get to whack anybody. And we said, well, Lord, what do we get? He says, you, you get to get whacked. We said, well, we don't get to crucify anybody. We want to pay them back. They crucified you. We want revenge. He said, no, if you're going to follow me, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. You don't get to carry a sword. You carry a cross. You follow me to the cross, through the cross, onto the cross. They said, well, we want to crucify some Romans. We wanted a kingdom. Jesus says, you get no kingdom. You get no power. What you do get is a kingdom and power. You shall receive power when that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. But it'll be power, not power. It'll be a kingdom, not a kingdom. And we've got to keep that straight. There between Caesar Augustus and the Emperor Constantine in the first several hundred years of the church, there are seasons of terrible persecution. Uh, the fire in Rome, Nero was an, an idiot emperor, and the, about uh, a third of the city of Rome burns to the ground. They think the fire's out. It starts again. 
And the people are going to blame Nero. And Nero needs to blame somebody. So Nero says, I'll tell, I'll tell you who did this. The Christians. The Christians did this. So there's a wave of persecution under Nero, under other emperors as well. And the Jews are persecuted. Claudius, the emperor that followed, followed Caligula, ordered all the Jews out of Rome. They had to all leave. Businesses, homes, everything. So there's anti-Semitism, anti-Christianity, and all that time. But several hundred years later, there comes a new emperor to the throne, Constantine. And Constantine is at the night before a battle. Doesn't look like he can win. And he, he has a dream or a vision, and he sees a cross in the sky. And here's this voice or thought. In this sign, conquer. In this sign, conquer. So Constantine says, I know what that means. So he gathers the whole army the next day and tells them to paint crosses on their shields. So they carry the cross into battle, win into war, win the battle. Constantine makes all the soldiers get baptized and become Christians. Constantine, however, <laughs> does not. He waits until he's nearly dead. He's just, I'd like a deathbed conversion. But he misunderstands. Christianity now, which has, was the persecuted religions, ground to a powder, crucified, thrown to lions, the horror of persecution under Nero now becomes the state religion. And it actually is one of the worst things that ever could have happened. For Christianity to be the state religion of the Roman Empire was the beginning of the corruption of the religious leadership of Christianity until it became just as corrupt and power-hungry as the religion and power-hungriness under the time of the religion of the Jews that crucified Jesus. So, what do we say to these things? Now, this is a pretty complicated way to start a 30 Wednesday series on the book of Acts. I can see people saying, I'm not going to make 30 of these. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Jesus confused his people. This guy is not reaching me. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it, it's really, it's important. What I'm saying to you is, is important. And that is this. There can be circumstances, world circumstances, geopolitical circumstances, tragedy, terrible things, horrible things. The persecution of the saints in the arena at Rome, the, the, Children tied up in oily blankets and put up on poles and lit on fire to light the spectacle of their parents being thrown to lions. You say, God, that's the most horrible thing that can be imagined. And yet actually, it may be one of the church's most brilliant and beautiful moments. During the first few hundred years of the terrible persecution from Rome and the horrible opposition of, of its own religious atmosphere is some of the most powerful muscular season of entire 2,000 years of church history. Persecution is bad. And God says, well, yeah, no. 
Lord, we want a kingdom. A kingdom's good. And God says, no, kingdoms are bad. But you'll have one, and it's good. That's, that's actually the kind of mixed up thing that's at the very heart of Christianity from the very beginning. From the very beginning. We are the people of his kingdom and his power and his glory, living in a world that is adversarial usward and against him. It's the reason that every country, every nation, every dynasty, every empire hates the Jews and the Christians. It's because in the short run, the Christians will be the best citizens in the country. Pay their taxes. We don't rob each other. We don't steal. We don't do. We're the best up to a certain point. But at the point where we have to say Caesar is Lord, now we become treasonous rebels that deserve to be thrown to the lions. And the empires know it. The empires know it. So what do I, what am I trying to say? What is God saying to us tonight? He's saying, Don't lust for a kingdom. Live in my kingdom. Don't lust for power. Things may change. Laws may get better or worse. Things may go up or down. Things may seem adversarial. The church may suffer. There may be good times. There may be seasons of relief or reprieve or revival. But he said, don't panic. The power that always has been at the heart of the church has never, ever changed has never changed. The real power has nothing to do with the laws that any country passes or who is Caesar or who isn't. That power is within us. His kingdom, his power. And at the end, his glory. Next Wednesday, what really happened at Pentecost? I've tried to confuse you tonight relative to the resurrection of Christ. And next week, I hope to completely confuse you about the Holy Ghost. God bless you, everybody. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.